Levántate y mira la montaña De dónde viene el viento, el sol y el agua This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Journalist Mark Cooper joins us for part two of our commemoration of the September 11th, 1973 coup in Chile in a wide-ranging conversation about the other 9-11, a ghost story. That's the latest entry to Mark's multi-part dig on Chile. It's called Utopia Postponed, featuring articles, photo essays, interviews, and discussions. Mark returned to Chile for a month this year to probe what has and has not changed in 50 years and to understand why the new leftist millennial government of Gabriel Boric is having such a hard time. Chilean society is once again deeply polarized, with up to 40% of the population saying the coup was a good thing. Was Allende's popular unity government from 1970 to 73 a stab at utopia that has been postponed? Or was the trauma inflicted by the Pinochet years so deep as to cancel future attempts at a more just and profoundly democratic social order? The interview had to be cut to fit this hour, but you'll be able to hear it in full on Jacobin Radio later this week. Google it. We'll get Mark's views when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today, we're going to continue our series marking the 50th anniversary of the coup in Chile. That's the September 11th, 1973 coup d'etat that destroyed 150 years of Chilean democracy and the dream of a better Chile. It's hard to believe that it's 50 years since Pinochet seized power, promising to rid Chile of the Marxist cancer forever. In part one of our series, we spoke to Oscar Mendoza about what was destroyed 50 years ago and the three-year experiment in radical democracy of the popular unity government led by President Salvador Allende that posited a peaceful transition to socialism a la chilena (laughs) with vino tinto, red wine, and empanadas using the ballot box and constitutional means to achieve profound economic, social, and political transformations that working people demanded, making its blueprint based on the country's history and political traditions. Today, we're going to talk to Mark Cooper about Pinochet's legacy, which continues to haunt Chile after 50 years, and the impediments that Pinochet's dictatorship poses for the leftist government of Gabriel Boric today. This comes from Mark's nine-month-long dig, which we're going to talk about. But the latest article in the dig is The Other 9-11, A Ghost Story, in which Mark writes that the ghost is Pinochet, and he continues to divide Chile. This comes from his article, Pinochet's Legacy of Human Rights Abuses, Neoliberal Economics Are Evident as Chile Suffers Extreme Inequality. Its military and police have not been held to account for the thousands tortured, murdered, and disappeared, and whose constitution enshrines the role of private industry to run crucial services like education and social security. Worryingly, that could be as large as 40%, continue to admire Pinochet and believe that he made Chile great again. 
or at least tried to. And this view is held most ardently, no surprise, by the wealthiest Chileans who benefit the most from the annihilation of leftist parties and organizations, suppression of unions, and widespread privatization. Mark Cooper is a journalist who should be well known to our airwaves. He served as a translator to Chilean President Salvador Allende during that period from 1970 or 71 to 73, when Pinochet's ferocious coup forced Mark to leave the country. In January of this year, Mark returned to Santiago to observe the political situation there 50 years after. He found a very transformed Chile that was struggling to chart a course forward one year after the election of Gabriel Boric, the first leftist government since Allende. Mark was there for a month and has since that time been cultivating this dig in the lead up to the 50th anniversary of the coup, which is on September 11th this week. The whole package is up on truthdig.com and it's really extraordinary. So I want our listeners to really go there and read it. It's just amazing. And I have read, I think, now every piece. Mark, you could also say what a dig is. I counted 12 pieces there. Still another one to come. (laughs) And the whole gig is called Chile's Utopia Has Been Postponed. It's a great title. And there on March 8th, there were three things posted. First, Chile's Utopia Has Been Postponed. Then Allende Pinochet and Beyond 50 Years of Chilean Politics. And then how the big awakening became a hangover. Then a few days later, Mark posted a photo essay the radical walls of Santiago, looking at the murals that still are on the walls in Santiago. And then in April, a short account to Allende supporters, two nights in jail and a gun. And then also in April, there was a big discussion that I participated in with Mark and Pablo Abufom on perspectives for social justice 50 years after the coup. Starting in May, there was the interview that we did, If Neoliberalism Was Born in Chile, Will It Die There?, And then continuing, there was Chile, leftist administration hit hard by the latest constitutional vote. We discussed that. And then on May 16th, there was an excerpt published from Mark's great memoir called Pinochet and Me, a Chilean anti-memoir. Then in July, there was a huge two-part series of an interview with Peter Kornblum, who did the Pinochet Files you must read it. It is just extraordinary and gives you all the documentation and backstory of how involved the U.S. was or wasn't in the coup and what was done. Finally, August 30th, Mark posted the article, a lot of which we're going to discuss today, called The Other 9-11, A Ghost Story. Have I missed anything, Mark? First of all, thank you for uh, outlining all that. Uh, I want to encourage our listeners to take a special look at the two-part interview with Peter Kornblum on the CIA. My intention in doing that interview with Peter, who I've known for 40 years, was I wanted to do the definitive look at the CIA's role in Chile, because it's too easy to just say, oh, well, it's a CIA-backed coup. It's much more complicated than that. Much worse than that, and much less worse than that. Mostly much worse, but it's an extremely interesting story with a lot of nuance that I would say the left does not have a very good understanding. I mean, they have a rudimentary understanding of what the CIA was about in Chile, 
I do want to mention two other pieces, by the way. I have a piece coming out in Jacobin Latin America on September 10th or 11th. And that is an essay about the final days and mm. what it was like during the last month and what I was feeling, what I was going through, what my friends were saying, what Chile was doing to prepare or not prepare for what appeared to be an imminent political clash. And also going up on Truth Dig sometime in the next week, if not before, will be my final piece for this package, which is a photo essay that I did in the General Cemetery in Santiago in what's called Patio 29. Mm. Patio 29 is a national historic monument in Chile. It's the largest mass grave from the Pinochet era. It was 109 coffins with 125 bodies in them, buried anonymously without any markings. At the beginning of the dictatorship, secretly, and when it was discovered in the late 70s, Pinochet actually said, well, that was an act of great economy, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> he missed his calling, Pinochet. He'd be a great functionary in the Trump administration. But that photo essay, I went with the volunteers who maintained that. They go once a month to clean up the place and to keep it orderly. And I was with a family of one of the disappeared who told their story about how they eventually identified one of these bodies. Of the 125 bodies that were buried secretly in the intervening five decades, they've identified half. In 2006, they thought they'd identified almost everybody and then realized they'd made a mistake on 50 people. Wow. We can begin our conversation by saying, as we sit here today, 50 years after the coup, the most salient factor about Pinochet's legacy is there's currently 1,400 people unaccounted for in Chile. There's 3,200 people who were executed, killed, died in prison, tortured to death, whatever. Of those, about half, a little bit less than half, 1,400 of them were disappeared is that they were taken into custody or they were taken overnight or taken off the street or were arrested by uniformed police or ununiformed police or by the military or by god knows what in the 50 years since of those 1400 only 307 have been identified that means there's still 1100 unaccounted for and of course, with every day that passes, as people get older, witnesses die, etc., it becomes harder to locate. The preceding Chilean governments to this one, the 33 years of civilian government that was center-left and center-right coalitions, mostly just center, they failed completely. They failed miserably and embarrassingly in trying to get their hands around that situation. And this current government, just last week, announced finally a national search plan that seems serious. So you started exactly where I wanted us to start, Mark. I just wanted to make one small comment on what you said about, that comes through in the Peter Kornblut interview on the issue of the coup, whether it was a U.S.-sponsored, U.S.-inspired 
or the work of Chileans themselves. And of course, that whole discussion, which we don't need to go into here, I just want to say, it does sort of what the discussion around Russia and Ukraine is today, which is to deny legacy for the politics in the country itself. And in that sense, I think anybody who lived in Chile knows that it was polarized. There was a large right wing and the coup was made in Chile. A listener should go back and read it and see what the CIA did or did not do. But you focused on the legacy of Pinochet beginning with the issue of police oppression and human rights abuses, which is exactly where we should start, because as you also just said, there's little accountability. And 50 years later, so many thousands have not been accounted for. And I think I just heard you say in those statistics that they have found something like 1,400 people and have not identified them all. Missing. Missing. 300. Right. So that there's something like 1,400, 1,500 people still missing or stuck in the court. Is that what you're saying? Well, we're talking about two different things. There's 1,400 people who disappeared, 300 of their whereabouts or their remains have been identified. 1,100 are still in the wind. We have no idea. We know who they are because we know from their families, right? But we don't know where they are, where they were taken, anything. Before we forget, but I'll just put it out there. The archives of the military and the police are secret. They're not available to the courts, generally speaking. There are some exceptions. They're not available to civilians. They're not available to the government. They're not available to the courts. Also, there have been two truth commissions in Chile that these two truth commissions did identify the victims, but they kept the names of the perpetrators secret, and they're still secret. And it's a 50-year ban. This last commission wasn't until the early 2000s. So we're looking at another 30 years of blockade. And one of the things that President Bordich alluded to in his national search plan was the fact that his government will now propose laws that will lift the secrecy on these archives. But that requires congressional approval. Right. That is a very, very, very open question. He does not have a majority in the Congress, okay? The Congress of Chile, by the way, is made up of like literally 21 or 26 political parties. So there's this hodgepodge, and you can't say that the opposition controls Congress, but the government doesn't, okay? Right. So there's there's a middle sector that kind of moves around. There's five or six or 10 votes that can go either way, depending. But generally speaking, the Congress is controlled by the right wing and it's in opposition. Well, I think what you just said, Mark Cooper, is really incredible because you we're talking about 50 years and several national attempts, apparently, to deal with it, including a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that you testified to. And unlike let's say Argentina, just next door, they didn't do anything about it. And here we have, and I want to do this before we move to the current situation, to talk about this level of not just unaccountability, but secrecy that you just mentioned. I think you say in your article that the actual archives are even stored in the Museum of Memory, but they're sealed for 50 years. And and you mentioned about, you know, in that process, Valletch, which you should say something about, 
my own husband and your friend, Roberto Naduris, was one of the many who was whisked off into the stadium and tortured. He died before the Valetch Commission, but I was able to put together his testimony and then be part of that process. So yeah. there is a small pension for those, and I'm going to hold it forever. I got the first one, and it said for violation of of human rights, which is quite extraordinary. But as you say, I think you asked me, but do I know who tortured Roberto? I didn't even think to ask that question, right? But they have that information. Well, some of that information. And there's been some cracks in the secrecy, not much. In terms of the Valich Commission, which your husband testified, which you testified to on behalf of your husband, there are approximately 50,000 Chileans who testified. And these were victims of abuse and torture. And without getting into your personal finances, making this political, yeah, (laughs) victims do get a pension of about $250 a month, which is more in Chile than it is here, but it's not very much money in Chile. The minimum wage in Chile is about $500 a month. So the pension, if you're tortured, is half of the minimum wage. So it's not exactly like the Chilean state is going out of its way to make reparations. In fact, in the ceremonies last week surrounding the announcement of Boric's search plan, the Minister of Justice, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but very closely, said that it was the state who is responsible for the disappearance of these people, and that it's about time the state assumes the responsibility of finding them. Right. Because until now, that burden has been put mostly on the shoulders of the families and relatives. Of the disappearance, right. And it's just awful because, as you say, Mark, Boric's plan, which was announced, I think, August 29th or 30th, and there's a great article in the New York Times that's been widely reproduced by Pascal Bonafoy, who you've talked to in Chile, about Boric's plan because literally the state has done next to nothing to find them. And now at least there is a plan for the state to do it. But the real question that I think you've raised is, does Boric control the process? I mean, clearly it's not a coincidence that Boric announces this on the 50th anniversary of the coup. And I think that it's clear from my reading of what's going on in Chile that the Boric government wanted to use the 50th anniversary as a moment of rebuilding some social consensus, some political consensus in Chile, which is as divided or more divided than the United States is politically. Because we're talking about stuff that's much uglier than Trump. So that has not worked out because the right wing has decided that it wanted to use the 50th anniversary for different ends. Right. ends that it wants to use is to discredit the current government that operates in the ethos of Allende, for sure. And the big word in media coverage of Chilean politics right now is denialism. Portions of the right wing now are beginning to deny even the anti-democratic nature of the coup d'etat. So what 
the right wing is trying to avoid is having the 50th anniversary turn into a condemnation of a dictatorship that they support, of course. Right. And not only did they support, some of them participated in it, right? So now they've come up with this exquisitely crafted political theory, which is they're trying to separate the coup from the dictatorship. Because few people want to publicly endorse the dictatorship. There's just too many horrors involved to say, well, we supported the dictatorship. But what they're trying to say is the coup, however, was justified because Allende had broken constitutional norms, which is not true, by the way, and that the coup was forced upon the military in order to save the country. We're happy the coup happened. We're happy that they got rid of Allende. We're happy that Chile did not become another Cuba. But, you know, we're not that crazy about the dictatorship. So they're not crazy about ridding the country of what he called the Marxist cancer, which at the time meant, you know, 51 or more percent of the population who voted for Allende. Well, it meant a government that had roots in 100 years of legal, peaceful, parliamentary struggle, not armed revolution. Allende was a Democrat to the core. The Socialist Party and the Communist Party of Chile, which were the two pillars of the Allende government, they were both long-respected, mainstream parliamentary parties that participated in every aspect of Chilean society. It was not a big deal if you were the president of a university and a communist. Allende as socialist was president of the Senate. These things were absolutely within the mainstream in Chile. But the right wing, of course, took advantage. And also, to be frank, a sector of the left got carried away with its enthusiasm and somehow believed that they could govern a country where Allende did not get 51% of the vote. Not in the beginning. Allende got 35% of the vote. And in Chile, if you get a plurality, it's the Congress that makes the decision. And Allende got the first plurality with 35%. He became president because the centrist Christian Democrats agreed to vote for him as president if he agreed to respect the Constitution, which he had respected for the previous 40 years in any case, right? right. The reason the coup came was that Allende began with 35% in September 1970. In March of 1973, four months before the coup, there were parliamentary elections. And there was absolute chaos in Chile. The CIA had decided to destabilize Chile, and it was working. But it wasn't just the CIA. It was also the Chilean business and merchant and political classes who were completely mobilized and powerful and were disrupting the government and had much more agency in Chile than the CIA did. Much more. And I would just say in passing, the coup would have happened if the CIA never existed. You know, and I think we're right to begin our focus on the legacy with the human rights abuses and the human rights situation today. But part of what it was, is you just mentioned all of the 
obstacles that were put into preventing the population from knowing what happened to their relatives and that it was on their own backs to try to bring cases. I understand that there's like more than 11,000 cases that were brought against the state, but they just went through this Chilean judicial process that nobody can describe and have never seen the light of day. But just before we move to the present, I wanted you to say something about what happened just last week, when it looked like finally, at least, the killers of the singer Victor Hara were going to go to jail. Uh, let's clarify some of the figures there. Okay. The dictatorship, you're looking at 3,300 dead, 1,400 disappeared, 1,100 of them still missing. Roughly 60 to 80,000 Chileans tortured uh, during the dictatorship. And approximately a quarter of a million driven into exile. And then the abolition of Congress, the abolition of trade unions, the abolition of politics, the killing of journalists, the abolition of all civil liberties, a 10-year curfew, by the way. These are the hallmarks of the repression. As a result of that, and this is where the numbers get confusing, there's 1,400 people who were disappeared. By coincidence, there happens to be an almost exact number of cases, 1,500 cases of human rights abuses that date back to the dictatorship that are still stuck in the courts. Next data point, in 2019, there was a general, peaceful, spontaneous uprising which of, we've covered a lot, but this was really Chilean, extraordinary. Millions of Chileans pissed off about everything, okay? Beginning with the rise of subway fares, but well, it was set so much by five Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was not about that. In those protests that would have overthrown the government if it had not been for the outbreak of COVID, yeah. quashed everything in March 2020, it just shut the lights off. As a result of that conflict, there's 10,900 allegations of excessive force by the police and the army, of which about 100 have gone into court, and of which about three or four cops have been sentenced to a couple of days in jail. So we have those unresolved issues. We also have an outbreak of violent crime in Chile, and therefore we have an improved attitude toward the police, who are generally not very popular in Chile. And now they're very popular because people are scared. And we have new legislation just in the last few months that give the Chilean police greater margins to use lethal force. So, and we saw that starting in 2019 when the Carabineros came back onto the squares, which is symbolically horrific. Well, the Carabineros are the Chilean National Police, right? There's right a militarized police, let's say. Militarized. There's only one police force of, that counts in Chile, and that's the Carabineros. They have been accused, and it's been documented, and there's been a commission, and there's been reparations paid. So it's all been recognized. About 400 people were blinded or had severe damage to their eyes. So the police 
fired pellets at their eyes. Mm. Okay? Have the police gone to jail for this? No. But if you got your eyes shut out, you got a couple hundred bucks a month and a pat on the back and told sorry, won't happen again. So this is a kind of perfect way to sum up this issue of whether or not the human rights situation has changed. Of course, it's a degree of change, and of course it's changed, but that the police and the military still have a lot of impunity and they're still able to hide the archives or have them sealed. By law, the police are allowed to destroy their archives every five years. Yeah. Uh, in 2001, when it became clear that Pinochet himself was in trouble legally and that the measures that he had taken to protect his cronies and the dictatorship were beginning to erode through some imaginative judicial action that pierced an amnesty that he had imposed for his own people. The army actually burned a portion of its archives out of fear. And when that became known, it was stopped. But there's still the possession of the military. <laughs> so what there's you have is, in fact, black box attempts. Yeah, a black box. I was going to say an attempt at accountability, theoretically, but in fact. What's the situation? Well, well, let's let's be very clear about this. The level of repression that existed during the dictatorship is part of history. The dictatorship traumatized people who lived through it, so that has a residual fear. Hmm. That people have been Pavlonian trained to be careful about what they say sometimes. Uh, that's no longer necessary, but it's part of the PTSD of the society. Mm-hmm. But there is freedom of speech in Chile. There's freedom of political association. You don't really have to worry about the police coming and taking you away or disappearing you or torturing you unless you are arrested. Right. You're arrested. The Chilean police still like to knock people around and torture them. Not with all of the zeal and technology that the secret police did during the dictatorship. But Chilean holding cells and Chilean police stations are not safe places. And also in terms of social conflict in the street, right, if there's demonstrations or protests, and there will be on Tuesday, September 11th, the police will be very repressive. That's what they do. The police have not been trained in modern policing techniques. They don't you rely on intelligence very much, capital I intelligence. They don't try to prevent crime very much. They're a reactive force. So they're called in to beat people up and to water cannon you and to shoot you. And then they go home, right? right? And wait till they get cold again. So that's the current situation. Uh, there's been tremendous progress in terms of the diminution of human rights abuses. There's been real progress in the courts that were definitely complicit with the dictatorship for the first decade. They began to recover, and they have recovered. And the courts do impose accountability, but the Chilean political system is vastly overwhelmed. It's under-resourced. It is not an even process. You have agencies that don't work, like the medical legal service, 
mm-hmm. are the people who identify the remains. And they made this huge error in 2006. There was an article in the Chilean media just a few days ago that 20 boxes of bones found in a mass grave somewhere in 2002. And they were sent to the forensics department of the University of Chile to be looked at and then sent to the medical legal service. We discovered this week that the boxes were never opened. They sat there for 22 years. It's a very good way of describing how slowly any wheels of justice move in Chile. But then there's also the issue now, 50 years later, about those who are still alive and who perpetrated some of the worst crimes are not dying in jail. As I understand the Chilean judicial system, which I have struggled to understand for 50 years, and I've even participated as a witness in, in a lawsuit against Kissinger and Pinochet, and I knew the judges. As far as I can determine, you get tried by what's called the first level, and then there's an automatic second level. It's not exactly an appeal, but it's sort of like an appeal, except it's automatic. Okay, And then that court makes another decision. And then that court can sentence you to jail. But my understanding is that you don't go to jail until the until what's called the Supreme Court ratifies the sentence. Now, this is not the same as an American Supreme Court. This is not a constitutional tribunal. It's just the high court. Okay, right. It's like high district court. Right. Mm-hmm. And this court, as far as I can tell, can take 10, 15, 20 years to get around to ratifying a prison sentence. So the killers of folk singer Victor Harda, who was uh, arrested the day after the coup and was killed a week later, shot 44 times, his hands broken, and had his corpse thrown into the street. His killers were identified pretty closely by the year 2000. Eight military officers were put on trial and they were condemned to 15 to 25 years in prison, 10 or 12 years. That sentence was not implemented until this week when the Supreme Court ratified. And when the detectives literally came to the house of an 86-year-old general to take him to prison for an act that he committed 50 years ago and for which he was condemned more than a dozen years ago, he shot himself. He was 86, and he didn't want to go to jail for the rest of his life. I understand that. But it also tells you about the, the Supreme Court, as I understand it today, and the Ministry of Justice issued a report while I was there. It currently has 150 cases dating back to the dictatorship that it still has not ratified. That's just the Supreme Court. And then there's another 1,300 or so, that are in the courts below it. <laughs> Don't oh. mean to laugh, but... Uh, no, you can't laugh, but I think it actually serious. tells you absolutely everything. And you have to understand that Chile is not a tin pot backwater. Not Chile at all. Is a sophisticated, developed country with serious people living, which means that the distortions that you see in the legal system are a direct product of human, i.e. political intervention, 
by the dictatorship and by its legacy and by its sympathizers today. And that's, of course, you know, where I want to go next, Mark Cooper. And I want to thank you because I think it's important to go over like that one aspect of the legacy that you highlight also in your article that's called The Other 9-11 Ghost Story. So, Mark, let's just now go into the second huge part. And I should just let the listeners know that then you also go into the economic legacy. And then, of course, the final point is how that legacy weighs on any prospects for change in Chile. And we're going to get to all of that. But let me put it this way. One of the most prominent slogans during that massive, spontaneous outburst, uh, social revolt in Chile in October 2019, was the slogan that said neoliberalism was born in Chile and it will go to its grave in Chile. So what was that about? (laughs) Well, that's a nice slogan. And it's true that nobody would, when I was there, identify a specific motor force for that uprising, okay? Yes, of course, the notion of a neoliberal economy is very much alive in Chile. And Boric, when he was running for president after the outbreak, said that he was going to put an end to neoliberalism in Chile, which he's not, because he can't. It's a nice idea, but it's not going to happen. It can't happen, which I'll explain. I think any more than you can have socialism in a single country, you can't reform the mode of capitalism. It's going to be very difficult to have non-neoliberalism in one country, right? Right. Because you have neoliberalism even in those countries that call themselves communists today. So I don't think (laughs) there's much prospect for that. I want to just do a little footnote right here that when the when the term first we heard the term globalization and then we heard neoliberalism. And for many of us, that just seemed to confuse because what we're really talking about is this late stage capitalism that we're living under around the world and no one is immune to it. Well, the problem in Chile, and I I think you and I have discussed this privately, Chile's neoliberalism is very weak and requires the support of the state which is a contradiction in itself, because neoliberalism is supposed to transcend the state and let the free market organize society. Well, this is a situation in which the state supports the neoliberal private organizations that are then given free reign to organize society, which is the worst of all worlds. The the private institutions that dictate much of Chilean life are broken. And I refer primarily to the pension system, the education system, and the health system. The health system has improved greatly, I'm happy to say. 80% of it is now public and free for the most part, at least on a progressive scale. So if you can't afford medical care, you're not denied medical care. 20% is private and is All of the private places are going broke currently. And there's a big debate as to whether government should save their bacon or not, (laughs) which is a perfect example of what I'm saying. In a real neoliberal economy, they go broke, too bad, tough luck. You didn't make it, right? In this neoliberal economy, the taxpayers are asked to please intervene to save the private interests of these people who are profiting off of your health. 
Well, we have this a very similar situation here, yeah. but but we also have a social security system in the United States that's far from perfect, but does provide a reasonable floor to prevent extreme poverty, and in some cases, much better than that. In Chile, <laughs> Chile doesn't have a, a state pension system except for the military yeah. when they privatized. Social Security. Which George Bush wanted to do here on the Chilean model. And that was done by the dictatorship with counseling from American think tanks. The Chileans are perfectly capable of doing this on their own. Take my word for it. They didn't really need the Heritage Foundation to tell them about this. The pension situation is perhaps the worst aspect of the Chilean economy right now. In general, the average pension in Chile is about $200 a month. The minimum wage is $500 a month. So people are living on extremely low pensions. University professor that I dealt with who makes maybe He's a full tenure, 20 years experience in a well-financed private university. His retirement is going to be about $1,000 a month. And he doesn't know what he's going to do because he can't live on that. It's not enough to live on in Chile. The Chilean system is demonic. And I'm going to spend a few minutes on it because it is so demonic. Unlike here, employers do not contribute to your social security. Only you do. (laughs) So 12 or 13% of your check is taken by the employer and he sends it to a private brokerage and you can choose one of 10,000 different ones, all of them more corrupt than the other and all of them more inefficient than the other. Two or 3% of your 13% immediately off the top goes to the private equity group as their commission. The 10% of your salary that they're investing is invested in private equities. It's invested in the stock market, right? (laughs) Period. End of discussion. I'm not sure if you can even adjust the risk level. I don't believe so. So you're at the mercy of this private group who invests in the stock market. And that means quite simply, that if the stock market goes down, you lose your Social Security. But and worse than that, the accounting is done in a way that's different than here. Those of us who are Social Security recipients, in the United States, we receive a monthly or quarterly statement that tells us what our pension is going to be. Right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't tell you how much has been withheld over your lifetime. Right? Because it doesn't matter what counts as the pension you're going to get, right? Really, you can see your account. So your money that's being taken goes into Susan Weissman's account that she can look at, but she cannot touch, okay, until retirement age. During the pandemic, the right-wing government allowed three moments where you could take 10% out at no penalty for emergency costs because of the pandemic. But generally speaking, that money's locked up, okay, until you retire. 
And based on how much money you have in there will be what your retirement is. And even with a big chunk of money, you're not going to get much. Here's the sad part about how this works. Neoliberal, that is neoliberalism, right? Right. Privatize everything. But as I was told on many occasions, neoliberalism, or what we're calling neoliberalism, I don't like the term very much. I think it's confusing. To me, it's just capitalism, right? right. It's just modern capitalism. That's all it is. That modern capitalism, it's not just an economic system. Now, the Chileans told me this with a great epiphany because they were just figuring this out. I think we Americans figured that out a long time ago, that politics flows from culture, and culture is determined greatly by the economics of the people involved. So what you have in Chile is... After 50 years of this model, there's been a lot of buy-in to the model. So Boric has proposed a rational, much more fair social security system, which would be more like the American system, which would be where you contribute the money. It all goes into a general fund, not into your account. And therefore, he's also proposed expanding Social Security coverage to people who have not put in very much money. He already has done that. He has instituted an emerge kind of a, a basic emergency pension for people who couldn't qualify for anything. And it's not much lower than the other pensions because the other pensions are so low already, it made no difference, right? But the idea was, let's put all this money in a general fund. Well, you know what? Guess what? A lot of average Chileans, a lot of working class Chileans who should benefit from this, oppose the idea. I know. I just oppose the idea with the same rhetoric, which is, why should I give my money to people who don't work? This is my money. Because they've been taught for 50 years that the money that goes into this uh, account run by thieves in the private brokerages who have ripped off everybody and have benefited like you cannot believe, they have convinced people that their contribution to Social Security is their money, right? Because it is. It's just, their money. And there's just one thing that I think needs to be said here, because there's been so much discussed about the Chilean pension model, the privatized model. And there's been studies done that had people not elected to have their pension privatized and had continued with the very inadequate public system, even with that, they would still be better off today. Well, that's why the military continues with that, right? That's not a coincidence. Bordich has two big challenges, and we'll come back to the economy. It's all about the economy. He needs to pass two laws that he's not getting passed for the moment. One is Tax reform, because rich people don't pay taxes in Chile. The tax situation is ridiculous. And the pension system is ridiculous. And that affects everybody's life, right? And there's also a whole number of other reform programs that Bordich has that's going to require more state resources, right? Which means more taxes. And so far, Congress has told him to piss off on both. Now, the ruling class, if you will, 
They understand the situation with taxes. They don't care much about pensions. But they understand that the state is being starved for money, and that might not be a good idea because they need the state as well. So there might be some agreement in the works maybe next year on some tax reform. But the pensions for the minute are dead in the water. And that is really unfortunate because that has other repercussions. Because the other big hole in Chilean society are wages, which are very, and therefore everybody's dependent on credit. Just to remind listeners that popular unity came about because there was an organized working class with a class consciousness, the likes of which we hadn't seen since the classical revolution in Russia and other places that was essentially wiped out. But let's talk about where wages are and where labor law is and how that feeds into this hyper inequality. Wages and labor law are in the same toilet. There is no labor law. There are some unions, but none to speak of. The industrial base was destroyed by Pinochet in the first couple of years under the guidance of the Chicago Boys, which Chile paid dearly for. It was a highly industrialized country, and it no longer is. Very few things are made in Chile. The Chilean economy is dependent on the selling of natural resources. To restate what you said with a little bit more detail, Allende was the product of a hundred years of political organizing by the left and by labor unions and by left wing and reformist political parties that had a tremendous history of advance and success in Chile and was just a forward march for a hundred years that was stop cold. So they didn't fall from the sky. And it's also a lesson for Americans, right? Social change doesn't come from a spark. Sparks ignite fires, but the combustible has to be there for the fire to burn, right? Otherwise, it's just a spark in the dark. And the Chileans were organized and ready for this. There is no substantial trade union movement because there aren't substantial trade unions because there aren't substantial industries. There's also labor laws that were imposed by Pinochet that prevents industry-wide organizing by unions. There are no automobile factories in Chile, but if there were four owned by Peugeot or somebody, you can only organize them one at a time by law. So Chile economy basically is about selling timber fish, and now phosphates, which is going to be quite profitable, copper to some degree, and other minor exports. But it's mostly... And lithium, too. It's mostly selling off its environment in order yeah. to... Hyperinflation was real. I think it's tapered to some degree. That was a product of the same thing that it was here, which was the pandemic created an enormous economic crisis. And the right-wing government, as the left-wing government would have, opened up the stigots for cash to get people through the crisis, which they did. And now you have a lot of money in circulation. But you don't have any currency. Nobody uses it. I mean, it's there, but basically it's the entire Chilean society is leveraged on credit. And you could say that about the United States as well, except it's different, okay? 
In the United States, people get in trouble with big credit card debts, and they use credit cards a lot where they shouldn't. But generally speaking, most people's daily living is not leveraged on the credit card. In Chile, when you go to lunch in a working class eatery, what's called a soda fountain, a cafe in Chile, when you get the credit card machine, even some beggars use swipe cards, believe it or not. Amazing. 40% of the population works in the informal sector, selling junk on the streets. It's amazing. Everybody's got one of those little strike boxes, right? But when you put the credit card in the machine at a cafe, the first option it gives you is, would you like to uh, put this on your monthly statement or would you like to make this in four payments? It's for an $8 lunch. And the same thing when you walk into a supermarket. So people are always months and months behind in their bills because they're buying bread on credit. So the inequality exists mostly as a question of opportunity, all right? Uh, extreme poverty and hunger of the sort that plagued Chile 50 and 60 and 70 years ago, that's for the most part been abolished. I mean, you don't really see that. And that's good, right? But there's a lot of poor people. They're not terribly poor, but they're poor, right? And half or more of Santiago lives in a ring around the capital that used to be called shanty towns. Now they've been upgraded into slums, okay? What does that mean, that there's paved roads? The roads have been paved and that there's uh, satellite dishes on the roof and that the gardens are a little greener. But this is still a world away from where the wealthy live. It's five worlds away. And those folks now have access to consumer goods that they didn't have before. They can get a television, sorry. I don't know what it is. Of all the things, Chile, TV screens are incredibly cheap in Chile. Everything else is about the same as the United States. But so the people have phones, you know, everybody's got a smartphone. They've got cars where they didn't have them before. And certainly the, the standard of living has increased, right? But what one really great economist pointed out to me was that Chile's the only South American country that's in the OECD, which means that it's theoretically a first world country. It's rated number 36 out of 38 of the OECD countries. It is the most unequal of them. And it is probably the only first world country in the world where 30 or 40% of the population makes a living by selling food in the streets, right? So it's a combination of Berlin and Haiti <laughs> you know, Singapore and Lima. It depends what neighborhood you're in. I think you mentioned in your article this economist, Hassan Akram, kind of dissects the what he, what numbers. He, what he said, he didn't He didn't use the word, uh, not because he was afraid to, but I'll use it. There's a real oligarchy in Chile. I mean, you talk about oligarchs, there's a real oligarchy in Chile. The real kind of old-fashioned Francophile or Anglophile oligarchs who live in these fantastic neighborhoods that compete with Beverly Hills and never leave them unless they're going to the airport. They're not about to go downtown or anywhere else in Santiago outside of their uh, rich enclave, which is probably the same in Beverly Hills. I'm not sure. 
But what he said is that the one, if when you do a survey of the Chilean economy, if you include the top one or two percent, it's one of the most unequal countries in the world, right? If you do the survey as the OECD does, and you do not include, for some reason, that top oligarchy, country's fairly equitable. There's a middle class that's probably about, if you're talking about real middle class, it's probably about 20% of the population. And they have a lot more in common with the poor than they do with the wealthy. And the middle class in Chile, unless it's the upper middle class, if you're talking about a couple of doctors, that's different. But if you're talking about a couple of white collar office employees who are middle class, right? Yeah. They live in constant fear of falling below the line because that could happen at any moment. And one of the most revealing statistics I saw was a survey done by an international financial organization that determined that 64% of the Chilean population has trouble getting to the end of the month. Globally, only 34% say they have trouble getting to the end of the month. So Chile is kind of an extreme case. And in passing, education is a big deal because it's your pedigree. Okay. In Chile, yeah. it's the only key to social mobility, that and the lottery. Okay. Yeah. You don't have the right education, you're not going to get any. And the poor were shut out of the universities. The universities were privatized. They blossomed because they're great businesses. There's yeah. more universities per capita in Chile probably than anywhere in the world. It's hard to keep track of them. Most of them are private. Some of them are good. Some of them are not. Bordich in 2011, along with his two closest collaborators who were in the government, including Camila Valenzuela, they were the leaders of the 2011 a university protest, and those paid off. There were reforms made. There were reforms made before that and after that. And the Chilean educational system, the university system, has improved because you can now be subsidized in if you're poor, where you couldn't. However, I had more than one university professor tell me that at their university, from the same university, which was a upscale, once an upscale, private, prestigious university in downtown Santiago, which is the wrong place to be. A lot of the subsidized folks have gone there. And what that created was a flight of the richer students who said, oh, no, we're not, we're not going to school here with all these Poor people, we're going to go back up to the Barrio Alto and go into the Catholic University, wherever it is, because we need the highest prestige degree. So that sort of apartheid still exists, even in the midst of equalizing reform. Then at the lower level, it's still catastrophic because education was not privatized per se by Pinochet. K-12 education was municipalized, which meant that it became basically the exclusive domain of the local city government. So if you lived in a rich city, you were fine. And if you lived in a poor town, too bad. They didn't have any money for the schools. 
And now you have some chance of getting the university, but nobody cares because you went to the wrong university and you come from the wrong neighborhood and you're the wrong color because you're darker than the rest. You're a little bit darker than the rest of us, right? Because we're 100% European, you're only about 70%. So that sort of apartheid is not institutionalized in Chile. It's just normalized, okay? Wealthy people, upper middle class people, they will not go downtown. There's no reason. They hate it. They hate the people who live there. And they hate everybody around them because everybody around them is a threat. And the common people of Chile, the working class, as you call it, they're not going to the rich neighborhood either because there's nothing for them to do there except get looked at in a funny way. On Saturdays, you get a certain amount of common people, i.e. people without any money, who make it an outing to go to the super duper ultra luxury six-story mall in the bougie neighborhood because it's sightseeing. It's like, well, we can go to the ocean and we can go look at the mall. Let's go look at the mall and look at the $200 tennis shoes that we can never buy. I think this is really incredible that we've been able to go over all of these various aspects of the economic legacy of the Pinochet years, the ghost that still haunts Chile. And so we've talked about First, human rights abuses, then the unbelievable inequality in both pension the and revi- education. The, the revisionism around the coup. Yeah, yeah, go There's ahead. The resurgence of qualified and unqualified support for Pinochet, yeah. which had faded and now has reanimated itself. That might come and go. Maybe that might just be a reaction to the 50th anniversary. There's a lot of negative publicity about Pinochet right now in Chile. Right. This is really important and this is where we should go. I wanted to ask you just to kind of wrap up the legacy. Uh, we talked just a bit about wages and unions, but I think we should maybe talk about that in a moment when we talk about the left and the state of organization. But just in terms of the most overt aspects of the legacy that that now seem as impediments to the government in power today and the very worrying part, because if you live anywhere in the world today, the 50th year anniversary is being celebrated by events and concerts and exhibitions and movies, discussions. There's a lot of activity around this, which only testifies to how important Chile was in terms of global consciousness. It was a touchstone because yes. here you had this experiment. Especially in Europe. Yeah, but and somewhat in the US too, but it because you had this, you know, you had this example of a peaceful road to socialism and a radical d- democratic road that you hadn't seen elsewhere that was not Soviet or Chinese or Cuban, but was quintessentially Chilean. But maybe, and this is what you get in the Corn Blue interviews too, that Kissinger and Nixon recognized this model had to be defeated because this model could have been very attractive around the world. So let's just go to the last part of it, which is how Pinochet's legacy weighs on the prospects of change and the Boric government. As I started to say, there's all these celebrations or commemorations around the world. And in Chile, they're trying to turn it into something where a substantial part of the population thinks the coup was okay. Yeah, well, a substantial part, most populations probably think that. I also think that maybe I'm telling myself a story here. It's possible. I, I don't know. 
this is not a good week for Pinochet in Chile. Let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a good thing. (laughs) The amount of coverage the last few weeks about the dictatorship has been overwhelming. And none of it is good. So I think that some of the militant, almost irrational reaction of the hard right might be desperately kind of pushing back. The support for Pinochet or the, the, let's say the sympathy for Pinochet is it's a minority and it's not very popular within the popular culture. Okay, uh, So the culture is definitely more liberal than the politics are like this country in some ways. So what it's done is, I'll give you a perfect example. During the popular unity government, that one of the devil figures was Sergio Nofre Harpa. Harpa. He was a nasty old man who was the head of the extreme right-wing national party that was barely democratic. When it was in power, it was democratic. When it was not in power, it was very close to the, the neo-fascists and to the Nazis, actually. But he was militant, a right-winger. He was also General Pinochet's Minister of the Interior for a couple of years. It's precisely during the period of rebellion in 1983 when the economic situation collapsed in Chile and millions came into the streets to try and overthrow Pinochet. And they were repressed violently by Sergio Nofre Harpa, the Minister of the Interior. Sometime last week, uh, Boric had yet another ceremony where he was congratulating, commemorating a handful of individuals, of political leaders, of religious leaders, academics, who uh, were not necessarily on the left, but who played a substantial and strategic role in the transition out of the dictatorship, the transition to democracy. So while he was lauding those people, he took a pot shot, which I thought was great, uh, because it was about time somebody did it. He took a pot shot at the ghost of Onofre Harp. Unfortunately, not everybody had this same attitude of, of of helping the transition, there's some like Onofre Harpa who lived out his last days in unwarranted impunity. I mean, this is this in a rational society is not up for discussion. He was the Minister of Interior of a fascist dictatorship at the height of its repression. What, what do you want me to say about him? That he was he was misunderstood, you know? Uh, I don't know. Well, the right wing blew a blew a cork over that and took advantage of that because they right now will do anything to distract you from the 50th anniversary of the coup. So they said, oh, well, this is a rich, Boric is now criticizing our fine uh, politicians who sacrificed themselves to try and make Chile better. He needs to apologize. So Pinochet doesn't have to apologize. The armed forces don't have to apologize. The police don't have to apologize. And they have not, by the way. But Bordich has to apologize, theoretically, because he pointed out that it was a civilian fascist who was the Minister of Interior. One nice development. I'm not sure when it started, but sometime I noticed this year, there's been a change in, in the semantics and language. 
in the popular culture. The dictatorship is no longer referred to as the military dictatorship. It's referred to as the civilian military dictatorship because that's what it was. Right. This is really important. After the first couple of months, there were civilians in it up to their neck. And then, of course, whole parties were created to support it that were civilian parties. And the party that was created by the secret police, UDI, is the major party of the right wing in Chile. And is now, by the way, the moderate right. Put this whole 50th anniversary has put the Chilean right on the hot seat. And and I think you should also talk within this. We've discussed it a lot on this show about what's happened to the efforts to overthrow or overturn or modify the Pinochet Constitution. But it led to, in the elections of last May, the party well to the right of what you just mentioned, the UDI, which is the party of past who is you know, literally a Nazi. Well, his father was a Nazi. Father. He's a Nazi party. He's just an extreme right-winger whose brother was in the cabinet, Pinochet's cabinet. He's on the rise now. He's the hard right-wing. He got 28% of the vote in the first round of the presidential election, where Boric got 25%. 28% was a high watermark for the extreme right in Chile. He, the party is maybe only seven or eight years old, something like that. Uh, It's only been in one prior, one or two prior elections. And it was, you know, the party was polling like the extreme right parties in Europe, you know, five, seven, eight percent. Now, you know, he got 44 percent in the first round of the presidential elections, right? And the second round that he lost, but it was 44 percent. Now, a lot of that was an anti-Borich vote. It wasn't necessarily pro-Cost. But what we're seeing now in Chile, as we speak, is that he is now exerting the same sort of pressure on the traditional Chilean right wing that Trump did eight years ago. And they're falling in line sort of reluctantly. It's not clear whether they're going to fall in line completely because the political situation for the moment is favorable to the right. and. I think they've got visions of being elected, having their candidate, Evelyn Matei, daughter of the Air Force general who was part of the last. Yeah. She claims he was anti Pinochet, but <laughs> she's having memory problems, apparently. Or revising uh, history has become yeah, universal. Oh, yeah. She's going to be, she would be the candidate. And she's popular uh, on the right. And she's not that scary. I mean, unless you really look deeply, because she's reasonable, somewhat rational, somewhat moderate. She's not a screaming Mimi, but she's a reactionary. They're worried that giving Cost too much influence or lying too closely with him could sink their possibilities of being of winning the election. I don't think Cost could win an election in Chile. But, of course, I said that Trump couldn't either. So I don't know. But it's serious. Very serious. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's also interesting because Cost was being characterized as the Chilean Bolsonaro or even Trump. And it does seem, although we really can't speak with certainty before our next election, that the era of those right-wing populists who also spout very crazy ideas – is over because if nothing else, 
it opens up so much chaos in people's lives. Well, I would say just the problem is in Chile, as it is here, I don't want to get into discussion about here because it will never end. But I would say that Trump is no longer the problem. The problem is the movement he's created. That's going to be with us a long time because there's 50 million Americans, what, 50, 60, 70, I don't know how many you'd have to figure it out, who have stopped believing in the legitimacy of everything. And you have a similar situation brewing in Chile. It's not quite there yet. But the thing is, is that the right wing in Chile is not an aberration. It's part of Chilean society. It's the most sophisticated right wing in Latin America, right? which people don't understand. It's integrated deeply into the society and has great legitimacy in many areas and is not about to disappear. That's so, part of the legacy, is it not, of the Pinochet dictatorship? Oh, yes. Well, its whole character has been eluded and maligned and deformed by the Pinochet experience, much of the same way that, shall we say, the much of the left or the working class movement in Argentina has been deformed by the disease of Peronism, right? Yeah, right. Uh, so these are diseases as Trump has afflicted the Republican Party and Republicans get tongue-tied when they have to talk about Trump, in Chile, it's a similar experience now cast. Not 100%, but maybe 70% that way, right? So it's going in the wrong direction. And we'll but it's see. also a very different country. And this is where I'd like to kind of take it, Mark. You know, what the Pinochet dictatorship was so awful because the threat was so large. And that, as I mentioned earlier in your two-part interview with Peter Kornblow, was recognized by both Kissinger and Nixon that the Chilean model was an international threat and a threat specifically to the United States' plans in terms of its hegemony of the world during the Cold War. So now we have, you know, we go through this horrendous 17 years of outright repression and dictatorship, even though it changed toward the end of that. But then you have a legacy that, you know, a lot of people talk is just the legacy of neoliberalism, but it meant that the left organizations now with different leaders, or in some cases, the same leaders changed. And I don't know if this is an easy place for you to make that transition in terms of talking about Chile today, but it was so extraordinary that a year and a half ago, this young student leader, Boric, came to power and there's a new coalition and it was so reminiscent of popular unity that maybe it's not surprising that we're seeing the resurgence of the right and a discrediting of everything that he's trying to do. Well, I think that you stepped on a landmine. Because I think that the answer to this question is multifaceted, right? Because this has to do with the repression, it has to do with the left, it has to do with the response of the left, yada, yada, yada. I think the easy answer, the the, the synthetic answer to your question is that the estaído, the uprising, the social explosion, was in fact spontaneous, okay? It was not organized by big social movements. Big social movements temporarily grew out of that. And the remnants of some of those organizations are still around four years later. But for the most part, they're not. 
And for the most part, they didn't, they weren't very strong even then. It was mostly just spontaneous. There was no leadership. There was no program. There were different reasons why people were in the streets. Uh, there were some analysts on the left who argued, and I can't argue against them, that some economic protest wasn't just because people said, oh, we don't have enough money to, to eat or we're being oppressed. No, it was the other way around. So, hey, my neighbor just bought a new car. I want one. Why can't I have the new car? Right? You know, why am I not being treated fairly enough to be a, a an egotistical individualist like I want to be? There was some of that involved. I don't think that was the main motor force, but it would be undeniable that that was at least one percent to 20 percent of the people who were out there i don't know okay but you uh, could also argue that you know if you were thinking about a more equal and egalitarian society it's about putting more money in everybody's pockets well, and you know right. it's right. about being a, everyone being able to either have well, well, a car or a much better public well, transportation well, system. Well, don't forget the model promised you prosperity mm. not only did it promise prosperity it produced prosperity for the oligarchs, and then some trickle-down for the rest of the population, who did certainly feel that mm, things were better than they were 40 years ago in terms of daily consumption, but far short of what we were promised. Where's the promise? Okay, So there was that. I, went, I arrived there in January of this year, which was eight months after Gabriel Boric had been elected president with 56% of the vote. It was also four months after 63% of Chile rejected the constitution revision that he had supported, right? And he had supported too much. He had spent too much of his first six months tying himself to the victory of the constitution that didn't happen instead of tying himself to some immediate reforms that they should have made to win over the population. So they pissed away their political capital on something that was they could not control from the first day. Okay. Can I just interject that talking to, for example, Ed Broadbent of the NDP in Canada, he said it was a big mistake and no one should ever put a constitution up for a referendum about whether or not to change it. Because it's going well, to bring out all kinds of problems. That, I think we get into that when, if we talk about the left, because yeah. there are some serious mistakes made there. But I went there, well, I wasn't as naive as you were going in 1997 looking for the Cordones Industriales. Those were destroyed <laughs> roughly on the 11th of September, 1973. I went expect, knowing that there had been a downturn because of the uh, voting down of the Constitution. But I did not expect to find the level of depression and demobilization and despair that I found on the left and on the government side. And, and in fact, this gentleman that you referred to, Hassan Fakram, uh, who's a fantastic gentleman from Turkey who lives in Chile. Yeah, he said, hey, we're in the middle of a big hangover, mm -hmm. right? And what happened was that the protests began in October of 2019 and grew and grew and grew. And the government was conceding, 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 conceding. 
making one concession after another because the the primary target of that demonstration was the president, was Piñera, was to get rid of him. And he is kind of a classical oligarch, uh, and he talks like a CEO, and his cabinet was made up of a bunch of old white guys who were CEO. It was just sort of like succession, you know, in a way. And this went through October, November, December, went through February, and in March, there were huge plans made for gigantic mobilizations for March, right? And instead, we got the COVID epidemic and a complete shutdown of Chile. And that that crushed that movement. It didn't crush it. It just turned the lights off. Uh, and there was very little organization left to sustain it. Now, there was enough so that uh, Boric could get elected. But remember, the 2019 was the uprising, right? October 2019. Boric is elected 2021. So another two years had gone by under the pandemic. And he came in as the pandemic was tailing off, but hadn't ended. And there was still a lot of unemployment. There was still a lot of inflation. So he came in with the propeller blades worrying. Right? Walked right into them. And I don't think it's a big mystery. I think that the pandemic, the social disruption caused by it, the chaos, and frankly, something that's uncomfortable to talk about, the extremely chaotic and often violent nature of the social explosion. They did burn almost all of the subway stations, right? They did loot a lot of downtown. And downtown Santiago, there is not a square inch, I swear. You cannot find a square inch of wall space anywhere in Chile, that's anywhere in Santiago that's not covered with graffiti. So there were months of real chaos. People were afraid to go in the street, right? It's not that they're afraid that some anonymous left winger was going to clock you necessarily with a brick, but you didn't want, want to walk into the middle of a riot where the police are shooting at your eyes and people are throwing Molotov cocktails at them. And, you know, the Chileans got spooked by the violence. So a lot of folks think that the social explosion contributed to Chile's current state of crisis. But there's yeah. a big question to ask out of that. And I, you know, don't want to dwell too much on that aspect of it. But the pandemic in Chile changed the conversation. It went from okay. the kind of issues of inequality and everything else that we've been talking to, to inflation, immigration, crime, all of these other issues. And so the question is, how or can you explain how two years later, Borch still wins? Yet people are now more concerned about, as you say, being able to walk into downtown or well, walk sure in the streets sure. and and sure. crime. Not sure Boric would win today. You know, he won because the 80% of the country had previously voted to change the constitution. And he was the agent of change. Okay. Mm. And people also knew. Chileans knew whatever the situation was, they knew that Jorge Antonio Cast, who was the opposition, they knew that he was basically finishing. You know, it was bad enough that he got 44% of the vote. Another 5 or 6% 
wouldn't come that easily. I mean, that was that's probably his ceiling at that point, because you know it aggregated everybody into a, a binary choice, which are not common in Chile, because in Chile there's so many political parties that you know it's a presidential system with a million parties. It makes no sense. The pandemic shifted the focus from a better world as possible to my personal security, which I'm not sure that would have not happened anywhere. And then when he came out, he I wasn't there the first six months, so I don't know what the street felt like. But when he came out, when he when he took office, which was 15 or 16 months ago in the March of 2000. Uh, 22. The economy was still in the shitter. People still had no money. Uh, jobs were still scarce. And social order had broken down. I mean, the police were pulling some of the same stunts that they pulled in the U.S. They came under so much criticism for the way they responded to the 2019 protests. They were kind of on a work slowdown. You know, it's like, oh, you don't like the police? Let's see what it's like without the police, right? Mm-hmm. So a crime went through the roof. And of course, the pandemic created, I don't think we, I don't think even at this juncture today, we have made a real assessment of this, of the disorder and the long-term disorder that the pandemic has created everywhere. So you have the same sort of social breakdown that you had in Chile. When you have a social breakdown, socialist policies uh, become secondary, right? But let's move this in a way, because in your dig, Mark, that's at truthdig.com, we get a lot of your reporting, but also your what you've just started to do, which is your sense, you know, what Chile feels like today. And you were also there from 70 to 73, and you got a, you know, in your memoir, it talks about what it felt like then. But of course, it's a huge world of difference. But you tended to see when you went, you know, and you did the photographing of the murals, um, you ran into some sense of mutual aid and community-based organizations. You know, I guess my question is, we're talking about how much the pandemic shifted everything, but how much remained, how much survived from the years of popular unity till now, even though so much changed? That's a great question. I would say that it survived in miniature and in competition that are very powerful. Example, first day we were there, I began my anthropological studies by spending the day in the most expensive mall in Latin America, which is this ultra-luxurious phallic temple. It's one of the richest neighborhoods in Santiago. Spectacular mall, beautiful, great restaurants, all-American restaurants, <laughs> wonderful stores if you've got the money. If you'd like my money, keep talking about $200 tennis shoes, and that's what they cost. And at some point, my wife, who's Chilean, we sat down on a bench and had a $10 ice cream, and just people watched. And it was fascinating because the shoppers were like from another country. They, they You might have been in... Italy or Rome or Paris, these were wealthy people whose complexions were all fair, lots of blondes, dressed in very cool, shabby, chic 
which is very notorious in Chile because Chileans dress very conservatively, right? They like gray and green and suits. Uh, but these were like, you know, they were like at Newport Beach, you know, hanging out on the yacht. And we were saying, well, let's play a game. Let's let's spot the real Chileans, right? <laughs> and that was easy because there were a lot of domestic tourists there because it was a Saturday. There are a lot of people from the outlying neighborhoods. You could tell their social class by the way they were dressed and the way they looked and their skin color and the way they carried themselves and by the lack of coach shopping bags, right? And then we noticed the teenagers in the mall. And while this was most prevalent among the wealthier kids, it was also true among the tourist kids. They were all on their telephones, taking Instagrams. And I said something that wasn't very profound. I tried to make it sound profound, but it wasn't. But it was true. And I said to Patricia, I said to my wife, you know, Allende had to confront the oligarchs, the military, and the United States. Boric has to confront TikTok, Instagram, and the web, right? <laughs> For attention. And I've beaten this example to death, but I'm going to beat it to death again. I had two people, two different political scientists from two different universities who do not know each other, tell me on separate occasions, a few days apart, they both said, we knew the Constitution was going to fail in advance. We knew a month in advance when we saw how long the line was to get into the first and only IKEA that opened in Chile. Now, you know, it might sound petty. I bought stuff at IKEA. I think Americans do. I mean, I don't think IKEA is something bad. But what it meant was, what it meant for Chileans, it symbolized something, that this is what people were standing in line for. It's about me. It's about building my suitcase, my bookcase, or my table that's as good as my neighbors that I saw yesterday, or that the house that I want to buy. So I'm not, look, we live in one of the most individualistic societies in the world, and I don't claim to not be an individualist, because I am to some degree. But it was so shocking to Chileans to see, in the end, you know, Chileans are not going to be very different than anybody else. But that's the point. And that was one of the other uh, genius lines that I thought I had come up with, which was that 50 years ago, and prior to Allende, when Allende came into power in 1970, Chile was a backwater. It was this little country with 9 million people in it at the end of the world that had a homogenous population except for the 10% of indigenous, right? But, you know, there were no foreigners who lived there. There were no resident expatriate communities there. Uh, they certainly arrived after Yende got elected. All the exiles came. But Chile was this nice little provincial country where nothing happened. It was quiet. Some tourists came to go skiing now and then. The Patagonia at that point was still considered a place where uh, uh, ostriches ran loose. It was not trendy or environmental. It was a wasteland. There was one store in Santiago, a city at that point of 4 million people, where you could buy film. There was one store where you could buy recording cassettes. 
there was one department store downtown. That was it. So I have mentioned many times that prior to going to Chile, there was a magazine in the United States published uh, by sociologists called TransUnion, I think it was, Trans something. And Irving Lewis Horowitz was one of the guys behind it. And I'm reading an article, it's an academic study of where alienation of youth was at its lowest levels. Where What were the three countries where youth felt most integrated into society? And we're talking about 1969. Number one was Israel, made sense. Number two was Cuba. And number three was Chile. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. So people were unaware of the fact that Chile was very different than most places, right? Yeah. In its own quaint way. And what I concluded after being there a month is very simple. In the last 50 years, Chile has joined the world. And that's yeah. the problem. It and has the same problems. Right. That the rest of the developed world has now. I think I've mentioned to you in another interview, Mark Cooper, that uh, when I first went to Chile, my brother-in-law said that, you know, in translating it, it's a pity that you arrived now. Before, we were all about solidarity, and now we're all about individuality. And this was in the, you know, 95. And so it was, and it wasn't yet completely true, but the trend was obviously there. And that's right. what, I, I, what I, IKEA I, is about, right? I wrote a story, a cover story for The Nation in 1998 on the 25th anniversary of the coup. And I said that Pinochet had won. Pinochet had triumph, uh, at least at least culturally, maybe logically, not politically per se, but that the model had been successful. The difference between now, uh, uh, something funny occurred to me. Uh, I made a big deal out of the story that I wrote 25 years ago. <laughs> I made a big deal out of the fact that one of the popular trinkets that they were selling on the street was a dummy cell phone. It was a wooden cell phone, so you could carry it around and look like you're on a cell phone, right? And everybody had one. Now everybody's got a cell phone. So well, that's But you also, in that article that I remember so well, talked about in the height of summer, people, um, in the heat of it, people in their cars had their windows rolled up, even though they were sweating, but they wanted to make it appear to the people driving next to them that they had air conditioning. This is true. Yeah. So, Mark, we don't have a lot of time left, but let's take it now from there, because you've got a contradiction that's emerging here. On the one hand, neoliberalism reigns, and yet, in miniature, some of these other mutual aid, solidarity, community-based, grassroots organizations also still exist. Can you help us understand that? First of all, some of the people are still alive. Many of them were killed, and many of them have just died of old age. but. We're only talking about one generation. And there's been revivals, huge protests in 2006, huge protests in 2011, 2019. So there is a living memory that carries over to living experience to a degree. Chileans understand, even if they're more reticent about it, they're not alien to social organization. but the problem is that it's greatly reduced. 
I mean, there's a big political problem here too, Susie, which you cannot overlook, which is the left in 1970, generally speaking, and I would like to talk about this in detail at some point, the left had a vision of a project. Might not have been a very attractive one to some people, but there was one. And it was some sort of socialism. For some people, that meant Cuba, which was the closest example. For some people, there's a big communist party in Chile. It meant places like East Germany, right? Today, there is no vision. There is no unifying model. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the so-called Marxist-Leninist left, which from my perspective is a historic relic that should not be taken seriously as a living force. And then there's other formations, right? There's different forms of social democracy and democratic socialism, etc. But there is not a unified feeling, except I think that I think that the in Chile and I think elsewhere, it's obvious now that armed confrontation is on the wane. I don't think there's many people on the left who are uh, who are serious, who in most cases are going to argue that a place like Chile or God forbid the United States is going to be susceptible to an armed revolution. I just don't think that's rational thinking in the modern world. At the level of the street, I'm not sure what that means. And I think it means that people don't feel the affinity that they used to feel with larger groups outside of their household and neighborhood, right? They don't feel that they're part of some great historical movement that is going forward. And of course, where you find the more radical manifestations in Chile are among young people. That's to be expected. And not all of that is that uplifting. I mean, the spirit is. The program side of it is a little lacking, right? Because it's immature. And it tends to be more permissive of physical confrontation, more radical, more detached from the political system, no faith in any of the politicians, including the old left, the new left, the new next left. These just don't figure into people's lives the way they used to. And that's true here, too. So I'm not about to predict the future. All I'm saying is that Chile, more than most places, has the potential for some positive social change. It also has the potential for them not happening. We'll see. Let me ask you a final question. Because Chile also has a history that other people don't as being the one place where for a short time there was an egalitarian democratic socialism in power that really did not just pass resolutions, but try to affect profound economic, social, and political change that was so threatening that it mobilized the right and everything that followed, the legacy, the ghost that still exists. But we're commemorating the 50th anniversary, I guess, of the end of that experiment in social change. And you're saying it's a very divided and difficult thing to pinpoint. But 
Let me just ask this. Does Allende's example live on in any way? And is there still some importance attached to what was attempted? Well, Allende, Allende continues to be a towering figure in Chile. Respected, admired, and loved. Mordich has said many times that he feels that he is continuing in the tradition of Allende. And, of course, Allende is still a hero to at least half the population, for sure. His legacy in Chile is solid. Any left in Chile in the future is going to be... Allendeista? Yeah. What concerns me is Allende's legacy in the international left. Hmm. And I now speak to you as somebody who's a contributor to Jacobin. I have a piece coming out on the last days. So I'm going to speak now as a contributor to Jacobin and as a former member of the Chilean Socialist Party. Because I think the left in general has absolutely no understanding of the legacy of Allende. Zero. Almost zero. And I'm sure you've run up against this in your own work and so have I. Allende was an extraordinary figure. And I think that if somebody really wants to understand him, I think the best portal into Allende's thinking, if you can find it, I have no idea, it's got to be somewhere, is an interview that was done, I think, after he was elected and before he was inaugurated or right after. It was done by Regis Debray. So it was a Marxist-to-Marxist conversation. Regis de Grey was very much Marxist at that point. And he kept pissing off Allende in the thing because he kept referring to Allende's program as the popular front. Right. And he said, this is not a popular front. This is a socialist government. And it's hard to understand who Allende was. And I would throw out a flip line like this. If you like Bernie Sanders, you probably love Salvador Allende. But Allende was not a Bernie Sanders. Allende was a revolutionary. So you can say that Allende occupied that uncharted space of essentially, if you want to be precise, Allende was a revolutionary social democrat. Yeah. The parties that supported him were social democratic parties. Sorry to break this to people. Even the Communist Party of Chile was considered to be one of the most Stalinist in the world. The right of the Socialist Party that we should just let the listeners know derives from the left opposition and not the Second International. In part, an amalgam of communists. But probably closest analog in history would probably be the Spanish whom. But I'm not sure. It's probably not quite as radical as the whom was. But the point is that Allende was a revolutionary social democrat which is hard to understand because there are very few in this world and there have been very few since. And I mentioned to you that I remember reading Lucio Coletti in New Left Review a year or two after the coup. It was in the mid-70s. I think it was 74, 75. What I remember from that was, is what's wrong with the left? He was defending Allende and he was defending Allende's peaceful strategy. And he was saying... How is it that the left has come to equate the level of violence of a revolution with the level of its radical reform? There's no correlation between 
the violence needed to assume state power and what you're going to do with that state power. In fact, I would argue there is a correlation, a negative one, because if you come to power through violence, you're probably going to use it against your enemies. So I think that Allende has not been given credit by the left for what he was. And I think Allende suffered. I don't know this. There's no documentation on this, but I know it. I know that Allende was restricted by the realities of the Cold War and of geopolitics for not being able to speak openly about his views on Stalinism. He was not a Stalinist. No. He knew for political reasons, domestic reasons, for geopolitical reasons. He had to maintain a close friendship with Castro in Cuba. He did offer exile to left-wing guerrillas who had been fighting in Bolivia and in Brazil, Venezuela. But Allende did not believe in those systems. Allende was not somebody who said, hmm, I think we can get to a Soviet society through the ballot box. No, Allende was a Democrat. He believed in democracy. It should not sound funny, but it does. And that's unfortunate. He deeply believed that socialism was an extension of democracy. I mean, listeners may know, I wrote a biography of Victor Serge, and Victor Serge firmly believed, as Marx did, that democracy was so integral to the entire socialist view that you could actually say that socialism was nothing more than complete democracy. Exactly. Allende was an anti-Stalinist socialist. He was a democratic socialist. And again, that's a point of comparison with Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders is the most left-wing kind of national politician we have. But Bernie Sanders is a social democrat, which is fine. He's not for a socialist transformation of society. That's the key point. Yeah. But here's the question, Susie, that the left doesn't ask themselves. What other possibilities for socialism is there other than a consensual, peaceful parliamentary or democratic road. Do you really think you can govern a society through a minority dictatorship? You can, but it becomes a minority dictatorship, right? So With people the emphasis said, oh. on dictatorship. So people say, oh, well, Allende was, he made a mistake. He, he was wrong. Allende was not naive. He understood the odds that he was up against. But, yeah. but the point is that Allende knew what democracy was, and that's what he wanted. He was not a sellout. He was not a moderate. He was not somebody who was afraid of the word socialism, talked about it all the time. But he wanted a society that was cohesive, that was democratic, that was fair, that governed by rule of law, in which there was freedom of expression and freedom of assembly and freedom of speech. Those leftists today, I speak now on personal authority as somebody who worked for him. Those leftists today dare to say, well, Allende got it wrong, how naive he was. Well, he was naive. He was naive. The Cubans were not naive. They were going to build socialism on one island, 50 miles from the United States. How do you build a basis of support that's enduring, that is not a personality cult, that doesn't depend on secret police? 
that does not have black prisons, does not have all the things that the actually existing socialist countries had or have, right? And I think, again, it's gotten the short stick on that. And as we see, the left has moved in that direction in any case, right? The left has moved into peaceful transitions. I mean, there are no significant armed leftist movements in the world today. I just don't think he's been given his due as somebody who could really see who was really a socialist visionary. And people who are now hung up on, oh, it's got to be violent. You got to kill people and you got to have a revolution that over smashes the state. It's easy to say when you're sitting in a cafe in San Francisco. It's a lot harder to do when you're looking at F-16s and a bunch of tanks. Well, Mark, I want to thank you so much for all of that. I think that we could then say in commemorating what was destroyed 50 years ago, perhaps coming out of that, there'll be an understanding of what Allende stood for, backed by mass support in the society. And that's what's missing in so many other of these examples. And if that would be the case, then, well, let's just say that Allende is a man before his time. It's a lot easier to build mass support if you're about democracy and not about fear. Right. I want to thank you, Mark, for all of this conversation and just tell people you have to look at this extraordinary 14-part dig at truthdig.com where you'll see a wealth of articles, photo essays, and real analysis of that period and the 50 years after it. Mark Cooper, journalist extraordinaire, author of many works, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. 